Have you been enjoying the series in First uh, and Second Samuel, our Samuel Insights? Um, I may not ask that again if there's not a great response. Uh, and, it, and if you haven't been, there you go, do the, do the Haiti thing. Remember, we can do that. Um, if you haven't been, don't worry, don't fret. Uh, we've only got one more Sunday after today, and then we'll be done with Samuel, at least uh, from our teaching, preaching perspective. Hopefully, some of the things have been hidden in your hearts over the past few weeks, as they have for mine. Uh, if, you, if you know uh, about teaching and preaching, one thing you know is that you get impacted first, thanks, and before anybody else does. And so this is, is no different for me. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 12. And I uh, mentioned last week that we were going to, you know, essentially get out and look around at 11 and 12. Uh, chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. And the reason for that is they really are very transitional chapters in, honestly, the whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, There's a trajectory moving upward for David, and then it plateaus with his sinning in 11 and 12 and his response. Uh, And then from there, things begin to go downhill quickly uh, in the text, and so we're going to um, finish looking around at 11 and 12, and then we're going to full throttle ahead all the way to 20, all right? So let's jump in. Notice these words as we've already read the story that Nathan gives to David. We stopped with, you are the man, but the Bible thankfully doesn't stop there. I want to pick up here in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then 24 and 5. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which is beloved of Yahweh, because of Yahweh the Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would help us to gain insight from the life of David as found in 2 Samuel. We pray in your name. Amen. There is a sequence that if one pays close attention to, uh, you'll see in Second Samuel, starting with chapter 9 and moving all the way to 20. It's really a, uh, what they call a, successive, a succession narrative. And it's, uh, it's, it's, by some scholars' account, it's the most beautiful piece of literature in the Bible as far as narrative is concerned. And it's very clear, and it moves and flows and transitions really well. And this sequence begins with a fella, or with the death of a king in Ammon. You may remember this. He, he dies, his son takes over, and David sends some mourners to him to show respect because they had a relationship. Even though they were of different kingdoms, he sends some people to mourn. And that's what they used to do in the, in the ancient world was they would send people to mourn with you. I mean, it's much like why you go to a funeral or travel to a funeral. You just go to mourn. You don't go to give advice and wisdom and what have you. You go to cry with those who are crying and weep with those who are weeping. 
And so he sends them, well, long story short, the king embarrasses David's men. And so David calls war down upon them. And within that context is where the sin of David occurs, which is the turning point, the transition. And then from there all the way to 20. So the sin happens, 11 and 12. All the way to 20 is really the undoing of his family. Initially in 2 Samuel, you have the building up of his kingdom that God is giving to him. And then you plateau, and then you have the undoing of his family, which is seen in the consequences of sin and the sin of his family. And so what I want to do is just very simply remind you of the three things we've been seeing in Samuel, which are these. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. That doesn't change with David's sin or David's righteousness or his family's sin. Despite human evil, God is at work. And then lastly, God will raise up a messianic king, and we certainly see the need for that in even the life of the model king, David. You are the man. This is the word from Nathan the prophet. I have sinned against Yahweh. This is the word from David the king. The king humbles himself before a prophet, a man. Knowing full well that the consequences of such actions as he had taken in 11 would result in his death. It's only after his confession that Nathan tells him, you won't die. The Lord has actually taken away your sins. Because the law prescribed death for adulterers and murderers. And yet, God's grace is seen in the life of David as he humbles himself before a man, a prophet. But ultimately, God is hum- or David is humbling himself before God, isn't he? For this is God's man, Nathan, with God's word on his lips. Interestingly, David is not just remorseful for his sin. He is repentant. Now, of course, I'm sure, looking back, he was remorseful, filled with remorse, regret. You know, they say, looking back is always 2020, right? I wish I could have done that. I wish I would have invested in that. I wish I would have done that or not said that. David sinned against God. He tells us that specifically. Against you and you only have I sinned. Psalm 51. And yet, David wants God more than any punishment that would be prescribed by the law. He's willing to humble himself rather than continue in the lie. Rather than to continue to cover up the truth, he uncovers himself before another human being. He confesses, plain and simple. No excuses. If we had time, we could go back and look at the life of Saul and see that every time the prophet Samuel confronted him with his sin, he had excuses. It was the people. The people wanted the meat. The people, they could do a barbecue tonight. 
Well, God didn't tell him to do that. He always had someone to blame and was reluctant to expose his sin, to uncover himself. He wasn't just remorseful. He was repentant, willing to take whatever punishment so long as he was reconciled to God. Are we willing to do that? Do we want God or do we just want him to erase the consequences? You know, if you're like me, you found that in your own marriage, uh, oftentimes you fail to live up to what it means to be a good spouse. And you can do one of two things. You can continue to cover. You can continue to hide. Or you can expose and uncover what you've done. And you can say, pretty much lay your uh, case before the court. I'm going to lay myself upon the mercy of the court. It's the person who only wants the consequences of their actions taken away and not the person who is moving in the wrong direction. We need God. And we need to confess our sins in order to be reconciled to God. So long as we hide our problem, the issue continues. We mustn't hide like Adam and Eve, our first parents, but come out into the light and be exposed for what we are. This is what Isaiah did in chapter 6 of his prophetic call. I've seen the Lord, and I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He was exposed. He says, I was undone, uncovered. Our natural state is to cover ourselves, to hide it. But when we are before God, we must not do that. Years ago, when I was a kid, Dad would make us cut wood. Um, As soon as we left the house, he actually got a gas log. Um, But so long as we were in the house, he made us go out and cut wood and chop wood and stack wood and so on and so forth. Uh, He said it built character. Um, And one day, I was cutting with a splitting axe. It was about an eight-pound splitting axe. It has a head on the back of it. And I was using wedges, and I was using a, um, a maul, you know, to slam that down. And we were cutting gum, right? So gum wood is, is just, it's awful. To, it's, not, it's not nice. It, it just is like gum. And so I've got wedges stuck in there, and I, I'm like, I'm going to get this. I'm not giving up, you know, so I uh, hit as hard as I can. It, that splitting axe wedges down in there good, but it didn't split it. And so I'm like, ah, so you have to bump the back of it, right? But you've got to stabilize yourself in order to really get that back part bumped in order for it to pop back out again so you can use it. So I put my hand on the wood, and ah, and I'm really going to town on this thing, and it pops out and lands right on my thumb, eight pounds. And I felt it hit the bone, you know what I mean? And I grab my thumb, and I'm like, ta-da, you know what I mean? Because I can be dramatic at times. Um, (laughs) 
Let's just be honest. And so um, I, I run inside. I'm like, Daddy, I just got my finger off. Justin's like, you know, he's out there like, I don't know what he was thinking. I've never asked him. So you can ask him after church. Uh, and so I'm like, Daddy, I cut my thumb off. Oh, my goodness. I'm freaking out, you know. And so, so he's like, he's at the sink. He's like, what? You know, actually, he was on the phone with my mom. And he's like, quickly, oh, everything's all right. You know, hang up. Um, because she can be dramatic when things like that go wrong with her child, right? <clears throat> um, she does like me, in fact. So she, uh, so dad's at the, at the sink and he's screaming at me to let him see what's wrong with my thumb, right? But I'm unwilling to let it go because I think literally I'm holding my thumb and I, I don't know that I can bear to look down and never have a thumb again, you know what I mean? Um, and so I'm just like, no, I can't do it. And he's like, and he turns me around, he's like, let me see your thumb. You're going to go into shock. You're going to have da da. I don't even remember what all he said, but he was like basically screaming at me to let him see my thumb. And uh, of course, you know, I do finally. And it wasn't uh, cut off. It was, uh, it was banged up pretty good. And you can still see the stitches there that they put in there to have my thumb back in order. But had I not, get this, had I not exposed what was wrong with me, what would have happened? Infection would have ensued. I would have ultimately died probably. All because I was unwilling to let go and let somebody else see what was there. We can't come to God fixed up. We must come to him as we truly are. The real you. And it's okay. Because he knows already the real you. And he's saying to us, maybe even for some of us, screaming at us so that we might be able to hear a faint voice. Let me see. Let me see. And we, we just know this is too personal. This is too hurtful. It's too painful for me. I, I'm not going to let go. I, I, as if I let go, something worse may happen. But he's saying, child, give it to me. Bring it to me. I am the great physician. You don't go to the doctor and tell him what all's right. Hey, my hair's doing great. It's growing fine. Uh, my fingernails, they look fantastic. It's like, yeah, but what about that abscess? Oh, well, you know, uh, my knees are working great. Don't even pop. No, no, you go to the doctor in order to expose what is wrong so that it can be diagnosed and healed. We come to God in order to be healed. Not to tell him what all good stuff we've done. Look, I've tried that before. It's never good enough. It's never good enough because our good works are not what heals us. God is not playing a game. It's not that he doesn't appreciate us trying. It's just that the game is not played with our good works and by our good works and for our good works. There is no game. It is a straight up offer. You ask, I will heal. We either believe that or we don't. And most of the time, it is difficult for us to believe that. We don't really think we can be healed. We don't really think we can be saved. But we must be lost before we can be found. David's humility is what Jesus will call in the Sermon on the Mount, meekness. The meek will inherit the earth. You know, the term meek actually comes from a Greek usage concerning horses. 
is an equestrian term. Because horses are very powerful, are they not? And yet, when tamed and when bridled, they can be maneuvered just with a nudge. This massive beast of an animal that's way stronger than you are is meek because it is power under control. Power under subjection. Isn't that what Jesus was like when he was here? He said, I do not do my own works. I do the works of my Father. When he prayed in the garden, he said, unlike Adam and Eve in their garden, my will over your will, Jesus said, not my will, but thine. Meekness is humility. It is where real power lies. Under the rulership of Lord Jesus. Not Lord Marshall. Not Lord, insert your name. Have we been tamed? We must learn obedience. It doesn't come to us naturally. A horse must be broken. We must be broken in order to be healed. Are we bridled? Are we held in subjection by Jesus and his church? Or are we the authority? I would submit to you in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Those verses go together. Don't you need someone praying for your healing, for your salvation, for your walk with Jesus Christ? I'll be the first to admit, I certainly do. So many times I want to cover up and say, no, 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 no. No one needs to see this. It's not what the scripture's prescription for us is. We need God to see. And we need another person in our life who can see us for who we really are and yet still love us. I need that. You need that. God and His church offer that. That's what the church is for. We want to be the kind of people where we can confess sin one to another and be healed. And that's not just anybody. And we have a ways of doing it. A band meeting is great. Accountability groups are fantastic. These are various ways. God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble because every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. I wish I could have come up with that. That was Oscar Wilde. But isn't it true? Every saint has a past where they confessed, where they gave up, where they became undone. And every sinner, thanks be to God, has a future. That's good news because God opposes those who are proud. 
but he exalts those who are humble. That may not even work out in this life, but I'm willing to wait for the next life for that to happen. Because it's not about us. It's about his kingdom. We see in this section of Samuel, God at work in the background. Which is why we're able to go full throttle from really chapters 13 to 20. Uh, Please go and read them. But at the end of the day, it shows over and over again a repetition of failure. From rape to incest to murder within a family to fratricide. I mean, you're asking yourself, can it get any worse? And then usurping of his own dad's kingship, Absalom. And then the death of one of his favorite sons, Absalom. You have deception, you have lying, you have attacks, and you also have restoration. Because within all of the evil found in those chapters, and there's a lot, God is still at work despite human evil. Now, it's not all David's fault, the consequences of his sin. However, it must not not be lost upon us to see that even though his sin is forgiven and he personally won't die, the sword will never leave his house because of what he's done. The scripture says in Deuteronomy that the sins of our fathers go down one to two to three generations. But for those, thanks be to God, who love Yahweh, thousands of generations. It sounds depressing at first that the sins of those before us are going to affect us, which they do in fact. But he limits it to just three generations. But it is not limited upon those who would give themselves to God and love God in their life. Being a godly man, a godly woman. That blessing, thousands of generations. You'll never know. This side of heaven. It cost to love. It costs to swim upstream. It costs to follow Jesus. But it's worth paying. Throughout all the twisted, broken, and devastating family situations, the consequences of sin all over it in David's life, God is still at work. He has not given up on David. And he will secure his line all the way to Jesus. Protecting it through a bunch of kings who are not good. For once Solomon reigns, who will reign next, the kingdom splits. All of the northern kingdoms, uh, kings, they're all bad. None of them serve the Lord. Not one of them up north serves the Lord. And finally, they're taken away and lost forever. Then, in the southern kingdom, Judah, there's only a few good kings. And then they too are taken away into exile. 
but then brought back. The ending of 2 Chronicles has just a brief, meager shadow of hope that there actually is still a king, a son of David, alive. But that's enough to tether us all the way to Matthew, who then says Jesus comes from the line of David. No, God, even in the twists and turns of David's life, post his sin and consequences, is still at work. God, if you think he's given up on you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You say, you don't know that. You don't know what I've did. I don't have to. I know that God is a dirty forgiver. Jonah found this out, didn't he? And it made him mad. These people were terrorists to him in the book of Jonah. And God says, I want you to go to them. He says, no, nah, I ain't doing it. I know exactly what you'll do. You'll forgive these stupid people. I know how you are. And what does God do? He goes in there, preaches the worst sermon ever. All right, everybody repent. God will forgive you. (laughs) He goes up there and waits for them to burn. And as he's waiting, they repent. They even make the horses fast for repentance. Whole nation turned. And God's anger was averted. And Jonah, the book ends with him, as we would say, P.O.'d. And that's where it ends. He ain't happy. Why? Because God forgave the unforgivable. Thanks be to God. I I joined their ranks. Thanks be to God that God forgives those who need it most. The ones that we are unwilling to forgive. (laughs) Despite human evil, God is at work. But why does Israel have a king at all? That's one of the things Samuel's answering in this transitional book. Starts out with good intentions. They want to clean up the stuff that the judges' era has deteriorated into. And for the most part, it does curb the sin from judges. However, in the life of David, we can see clearly that we still need a different kind of king than even David. We need a different kind of kingdom than even Israel. And thanks be to God, this is that messianic prophecy that is littered throughout the prophets. Both the twelve minor prophets and all of the major prophets. Clearly being seen in Isaiah as this suffering servant. God come down in the form of man for us and for our salvation per the Nicene Creed. Kingship reaches its pinnacle with David, but even David points to a different king. He knows who the true king is, (laughs) and it's not King David. Because of this, not in spite of it, Israel will look for a messianic king. And we too need another king. We too need another kingdom. 
You could maybe say it in our terms. We too need another president. Not just one that we vote in. One that doesn't need voting in. By default, he is the king and president of the world. And we need to be a part of not just one nation, but a nation of priests, priestesses who are called by God to represent him in this world, to mediate his love in this world. God will raise up a messianic king, and his name is King Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, we welcome you here. This is your land. This is your property. We must expose our sin. We must confess our sin. We cannot handle it ourselves. We're not meant to. Forgiveness is not excusing. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Weight of Glory, makes this distinction, and I've never been able to get over it because, quite frankly, it's what most of my repentance was, was really just trying to get God to accept my excuses. Lord, this happened, and because of that, you know, I ended up doing this, and so forgive me, you know, which is basically the same way of saying, I'm excusing myself, by the way, here, because of my excuses. When are we going to just bear ourselves to him? Forgiveness is, yes, you've done this thing, and I accept your apology. I forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you. Excusing is, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. Until we take the blame in confession, we cannot repent, truly. We're excusing ourselves. We're justifying ourselves, which never works. Our covering, you remember what Adam and Eve did, right? They covered themselves. They got the point. We need to cover ourselves. God says, no, that's not, that's not the way it's done. It always requires sacrifice, blood, and he clothes them with animal skin. I got news for you, that animal wasn't alive. And it will always require blood for the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God, he has offered us his blood. And he offers it again to us today in a meal where we remember and are reminded and are prompted to receive, to eat, to drink. And the only way to come to this table is to first accept the blame and confess our sins. And then we can repent. If one, C.S. Lewis says, was not really to blame, then there is nothing to forgive. So you see, as long as we make excuses, it's not God who is withholding forgiveness. It's us who won't let him forgive. Real forgiveness, he says, means looking steadily at the sin 
the sin that is left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made, and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That, and only that, is forgiveness. And that we can always have from God if we ask for it. You say, I don't think it's as, as simple as just asking. That's because of your unbelief. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that in sympathy because I've been there too. Unwilling to ask. He doesn't want to heal that. He doesn't want that to be saved. He doesn't need to see that. Yes, he does. Unless you expose it to him, it can't be healed. He won't force himself upon you. Do not carry that to the grave. Lay it down today. What kind of freedom could be found in a humble place like this today that changes your eternity if you are only willing to lay it down and ask him for help? Confess, repent, believe. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.